Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. This is London, but broadcasting to you, of course, all over the world, thanks to the wonders of the Internet. We touch on not just the big issues of the day, but the issues that are not issues, but ought to be issues. And one of those is now taking place again in Paris this weekend, in France indeed, throughout the French Republic. 59 weeks, hundreds of thousands of people have been on the streets of France. They have been gassed, bludgeoned, bullets, rubber bullets. People have lost their eyes, lost their hands, lost their fingers in the ferocious defense of uh, Macron, the Bourbon president of France. The police and the riot squads of France are notoriously violent, but they have not intimidated the great people of the French Republic. So, vive la France, I say, for 2019, and may God give them success in 2020. It's a good time to look back for a minute or two about the year we've had. On this side of the pond, the biggest event, of course, is the British general election, which uh, ended up with a Tory landslide majority based on the vagaries of our electoral system, no doubt. The Tory vote actually only went up 1%, and Jeremy Corbyn still polled more votes than his predecessor, his predecessor, and his predecessor on the final time of asking. That's Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, and Ed Miliband. Um, Corbyn got more votes than any of those. Uh, He lost, of course. And because of our electoral system, he lost big in terms of parliamentary seats. And it is a big defeat in terms of the cultural seismic shift behind the red wall, as they say, in the Midlands of England. The Midlands, the Northeast, the Northwest, West Wales, South Wales, Labour's position is increasingly parlous for many reasons, the greatest of which was Brexit. If Jeremy Corbyn, the same man as fought in 2017 and won a remarkable score for Labour, 40% of the vote, the biggest increase in the Labour vote since Clement Attlee in 1945, same leader, A manifesto of left-wing policies in 2019, it failed in 2017. It did fantastically well. What's the X factor? What's the difference? The difference, of course, is Brexit. If uh, Jeremy Corbyn had told the Blairite ramp around him, no, we're running in the 2019 election on exactly the same Brexit policy as we fought on in 2017 and did so well. Namely, that we accept and respect 
the result of the Brexit referendum. If you elect us, we will refashion our relationship with the European Union in our own image, of course, as would be our right as the government of an independent Britain. But he did not do so. He capitulated instead to the uh, people who are now rubbishing him from a great height, the people who are effectively declaring him and his friends uh, as non-persons, effectively seeking to airbrush out of Labour history. And I predict that they will succeed. You know, I like predictions. Here's my prediction. The next Labour leader will be Sir Keir Starmer. The left of the Labour Party doesn't have a credible candidate. Rebecca Long Bailey is nobody's idea of a leader. She will not stand up to the rigors of the leadership hustings and the campaign trail. Ian Lavery, the miners leader, the working class man of the North, pick him and the left might have a chance. But given that 22 Labour MPs have to nominate you, it's quite clear that Rebecca Long-Bailey and Ian Lavery cannot both be on the ballot paper, for there are not anything like 44 left-wing Labour MPs. So one of those has to go. If Labour is listening, Rebecca Long-Bailey will not be able to do it. So put your weight behind Ian Lavery, the miners' leader. But I don't believe that they will do that, because Ian Lavery knows that Swarfiga is not a Greek island. Ian Lavery talks in a way that the metropolitan, inner city, elite, liberal elite that the Labour Party membership has overwhelmingly become don't understand. Ian Lavery is a difficult man to understand if the limits of your purview is North London and the Liberati that live around you. Uh, but I am very clear about this. If you pick Rebecca Long-Bailey, you will lose, and you will lose to Sir Keir Starmer, the man who was the architect of Labour's downfall, the man who made it impossible for Corbyn to take a sensible Brexit stance. He'll be your next leader, and if he is, he will leave a gigantic, piece of political territory to his left, and he will set free hundreds of thousands of active socialists who will no longer credibly be able to be a member of a party led by a knight of the realm and a highly dubious record as the director of public prosecutions behind them, not least in the case of Mr. Julian Assange. Last year, of course, was another year of Calvary for Julian Assange, who ends this year behind the grim prison walls of Belmarsh, Britain's Guantanamo Bay, and we recall and remember him at all times and prepare for the public relations battle to come to stop his extradition to the United States of America. I predict that Britain will Brexit joyously uh, at the end of January next year. There'll be a lot more mugs like this on view, a lot more flags, a lot more bunting, 
Britain will experience a patriotic surge. The left, the labor movement, has to go with that. If you are seen as the anti-national, the anti-British, the pro-EU, the people who cannot stomach their own flag and their own nation and its culture and its traditions and its history, then you yourself will be history. I predict a big surge in buy British, build British, think British. We have an opportunity. Brexit is necessary but not sufficient as a condition for building the kind of Britain that I and many of you want to see. But we must Brexit. It is necessary. And we'll have a better Brexit Britain if we are seen to be a part of this new dawn for Britain. If we are the people crying to drag the people back into last year and the stasis of neither leaving nor staying in the European Union, we will be done for. And since I'm in the predictions business, let me predict that Bernie Sanders will win the Democratic Party's nomination for president. I've been confident about that, as you know, all throughout this year. And I'm more confident about it now as the year ends. And I'm absolutely clear of something else. If Bernie Sanders is not the Democratic Party candidate in that election, Donald Trump will win a clear victory in the Electoral College again next November. And a second term, Donald Trump will be unleashed upon America and upon the world. There are other elections, of course. The third election in a single year in Israel as Benjamin Netanyahu seeks to hang on to power so that he can stay out of prison. Yes, it's as basic as that. The only way that Netanyahu can stay out of the penitentiary is still to be the prime minister. He's already partly there. He just won a landslide victory in the Likud leadership election. 72% voted for Netanyahu. So he is still the man in pole position. Now, you may say that that doesn't speak too highly of the membership of the Likud. But there's enough of them to give him between 33 and 35 members in the Knesset. His rival, Benny Gantz, with roughly 35 to 37. It's all about who can make the coalition. And my money is on Netanyahu. So there's, there's a third prediction of the evening, that next year, at this time, Netanyahu will still be the leader of Israel. Which means, of course, there'll still be never-ending war. War against the Palestinians under Israeli occupation, war in the Lebanon, war and war by other means in the Lebanon, war in Syria, and war in Iraq. The conditions, the situation in the Arab world is unbelievably febrile. The situation in Iraq has slipped from bad to worse in the couple of weeks since we talked to Dr. Sami Ramadani about it. Well worth looking back at that interview now. The situation in Lebanon is uh, perhaps even more critical. Uh, the powers, the Western powers and the Arab Gulf powers 
are determined to bring down the government in Lebanon unless they expel uh, the Lebanese Islamic re resistance movement Hezbollah from power and influence in the state. That will not work because Hezbollah represent probably more than half of all the people in Lebanon. So the situation there is looking grim. Now, the situation in the European Union after we leave is going to be grim too. Germany is almost certainly already in recession. France is printing money like Bilio to avoid going into recession. Italy is already in recession. Any breach in the trading arrangements between Britain and the European Union could be fatal for European economies. So again, I make a prediction that the European Union will settle with Boris Johnson in terms of the free trade agreement that he is looking for on favorable terms to Britain because the European economies cannot risk the slump if sales to Britain are interrupted. I've probably run out of predictions to make at this point, at least in the program. My prediction now is that you're in for a wonderful show. We have three top flight guests here on the last mother of all talk shows of 2019. We've even got a poll. If there was a fox in your hen house, would you A, kill it with a baseball bat, B, chase it on horseback, I think that's supposed to say, or C, strangle it with a kimono. This is the reference, of course, to a famous Queen's counsel, Julian Mon, who literally battered a trapped fox to death, battered its brains out with a baseball bat. That's notable for a number of reasons. First of all, the said Queen's Council was wearing his wife's kimono at the time. Secondly, this man drips with liberalism and greenness. He is, I understand, a supporter of the Green Party. He is an idol of the liber liberal chattering classes. And he was Mr. Anti-Brexit. He fought several highly remunerative legal battles to try and stop Brexit in the last 12 months or more. And he's the kind of man who not only beats a fox's brains out with a baseball bat whilst wearing his wife's kimono, but he tweets about it in triumphalist terms. So if there was a fox in your hen house, would you A, kill it with a baseball bat, B, chase it on horseback, C, strangle it with your kimono? You can vote now on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. Just hearing that at least two people have been killed in a church shooting in Texas. It's believed one more person has been critically injured during the incident at the West Freeway Church of Christ in White Settlement in Texas. The suspected shooter is believed to be one of those three people. One person died at the scene of the shooting while another died en route to a hospital. This follows an horrific attack on Hanukkah on a rabbi's house in New York the day before, in which, again, multiple people were killed and injured by stabbing in that uh, case. Uh, sorry to put a damper on it, because I'm joined by 
my favorite American broadcaster, Katie Halper, author, writer and host of the Katie Halper Show. Katie, welcome uh, to the show. Let's start with that miserable, melancholy news, if we may. Uh, it's not getting any better in America, is it? Violent mass killings. The one in New York uh, that I was still recoiling in horror from before learning about this one in Texas. Um, it's a banal question, but do you go around worrying about your personal safety as a normal person in the United States? I don't. Um, I think maybe as a matter of kind of ironically enough survival, like mental, it's a self-defense mechanism probably, because if I thought about it, I'd be pretty like debilitated by fear. Um, rationally, when I think about it, I realize that it, this is a scary place to live in terms of gun violence in this country. Um, but no, I really don't walk around thinking about it, but maybe I should. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll think about it for you. I'll be praying, okay. I'll be praying for you. Now, let's look ahead uh, to 2020, 2020 vision uh, in advance. Uh, what's going to happen, first of all, in the impeachment process against Donald Trump? This is a most bizarre situation. Uh, the House of Representatives impeached him, but they didn't communicate that to the Senate, so there can be no trial uh, of Donald Trump. So he's in what we Roman Catholics call uh, a kind of limbo. Uh, neither, right. neither one thing nor the other. Is that how you see it? Don't you guys call it purgatory? Yes, purgatory, yes. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, oh, very quickly, I just want to announce I have a new show, just to give a very quick plug, because I think your viewers and listeners will want to hear about it. It's called uh, Useful Idiots. It's on the Rolling, it's a Rolling Stone podcast, and it's with my co-host, Matt Taibbi. Um, oh, I definitely want to see that. Where, yeah, where, where do I find that? It's on YouTube and wherever you get your podcast. So, okay, you know, brilliant. iTunes, Stitcher, brilliant. all that. Uh, but it's video, the video is on YouTube. And actually, it's relevant because Matt has been one of the biggest critics of impeachment. There have been a few people. And, you know, what's really ironic, and this happens a lot in U.S. politics, is I think that the people who are most attached to identifying as Democrats and, you know, vote blue um, and have a real kind of like personal identity bound um, enmeshed with being a Democrat, they're often kind of can't see, because they're not as rational, I think, what would be good for resisting Trump, whereas people like me, of course, I'm, I'm biased, but I'm, I find Trump reprehensible. I think he's awful. But I also think that there are ways we can resist him that are more effective and then are more moral. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we heard Nancy Pelosi defend not impeaching Bush, even though um, he had, she knew, she said, because she was on the Intelligence Committee, she knew he had misrepresented, i.e. lied, about the WMDs. And to me, that was such a, a significant moment, and it was such a great kind of symbol of what's wrong with the Democrats. And, you know, there are ways you would go after Trump. There's, there's, there's a question of, there are two separate but related issues, which is the strategic value and then the moral value. Clearly, I think this is not the moral the most pressing moral issue. And it's so typical that, you know, the Ukraine conversation, which this is what the impeachment basically hinges on, um, it's so amazing that that story in itself requires looking into the corrupt nepotism of Joe Biden, um, which I think like the Dems are just 
okay with, I guess. But I think that it reads to other people as, as real hypocrisy. Um, and, you know, I, I want to resist Trump for, uh, you know, his trying to help overthrow the government in Venezuela um, for arming Saudi Arabia. That's what's important, I think. That's the moral um, priority and the urgency. And that's, you know, the thing with the Russia and Ukraine stuff is that it doesn't move the needle in any way that hurts Trump. I think what happens is that people who are kind of the Obama to Trump voters who we could win back, they don't care about this. It doesn't affect them. And people who stay at home who are, you know, who don't like Trump but weren't motivated enough to get out of the House, they don't care about this either. Um, so you have a very kind of insulated, insular, out of touch group of people who are constantly saying the walls are closing in on Trump. This is the, the smoking gun. And they've been saying that for years and it hasn't happened. And now, yes, he has been impeached. And then, no, but as he said, no trial. And I think Trump will use this also to his advantage. You know, he will will spin this as another victory for him. He'll him for himself. He'll say that they didn't have the evidence to uh, to convict him um, in uh, and, a trial. And, and and he's raising record amounts of money uh, on yeah. the on the back of it. I mean, truly right. gargantuan sums are flowing in. So clearly, yeah. the the people with money in the United States and uh, the people who are benefiting from this extraordinary stock market boom uh, that he has presided over, however long that lasts, they are predicting with their donations that Trump is going to still be around. Uh, and therefore, somebody's wrong. Either Nancy Pelosi and her gang uh, have called this right, or they've called it so horrifically wrong uh, that the Democrats are going down uh, to another victory, which leads me uh, to the Democratic uh, primary. Um, I have a strong feeling now that Bernie Sanders is going to win the Democratic Party nomination, despite all the efforts and the saboteurs in his right. own ranks. What's your view on that? I mean, it's hard. I don't want to jinx it. And I get so excited saying it, but I think it could be true. I mean, I used to think, and there's still some of this, that there are people in the Democratic Party high-ranking people, apparatchiks, um, who would rather Bernie w lose the primary and someone win the primary who loses to Trump yeah. than Bernie win both. Yeah. Um, but those people need to be, you know, marginalized and ignored and put in their place. Uh, you do, we have seen a weird shift among some people. There's some examples of, you know, people on MSNBC um, praising Sanders. I mean, Al Sharpton did this the other day. Uh, also, there is an article by Sidney Ember, and I wrote an article myself on Sidney Ember's anti-Bernie bias, and even she wrote an article about how he's tough to, to beat. Uh, of I course, there are little digs. Yeah. yeah, there are little digs incorporated into that. Um, sure, but, but they're, I, they're, now, they're now recognizing these polls in which yeah. they, they literally blank out his name. They I tell know. you who was first and who was third, third but not who was second. second. Uh, exactly, and I actually tweeted about this. It's on my Twitter. It's my most recent tweet. Uh, I can pin it so that people can find it. But I yeah. tweeted about it and I, I said, what do people think of this pro-media Sanders coverage? And there were a couple different responses. Um, and one was that they just have to finally deal with the fact that he's doing very well. And then another one is that it's a trick. It's like some kind of, it's the calm before the storm. A lot of people said that. Um, and I think that it could be both. It could be a combination. I get the sense that maybe um, they're realizing that Biden would just do terribly in a in a 
a debate with Trump uh, that he would kind of ruthlessly mock Biden's cognitive skills. Um, and then maybe they are realizing that, you know, if they want to defeat Trump, this is the way to go, um, which is clear to anyone, I think, who's, who follows politics and is kind of honest or is able to separate their personal feelings and maybe their some of their self-interest from the um, larger political landscape. Uh, because, you know, for so many reasons, uh, Bernie is the most electable against Trump, um, ranging from his how motivated and excited his base is, um, how much people who like him, like absolutely love him and will come out and vote, uh, how much his the young people, young voters love him, how he did better in the Rust Belt uh, than Hillary Clinton did, for instance, and how he's popular there. I mean, you have people who a lot of people will say, oh, he'll never win because he's a socialist. But I know people who are like in upstate New York, where I spend some time. I know people who are very kind of right wing and populist and they don't like socialism, but they also get that this guy is honest. Like there's a real consensus about Sanders honesty. And I think that really resonates with people. And so we saw, for instance, in um, the election between John McCain and uh, Barack Obama, there were people who did vote for Obama, even though they were, I mean, they, there's this apocryphal, I don't know if it's a real story, but people saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to vote for the N-word, which I bring this up because it's a pr pretty distasteful, disturbing example. But the point is that people got over or were willing to vote despite their racism for Obama. And I think there are people who are willing to vote despite their um, discomfort with uh with the term socialist. I also think what happened is that people kind of wasted their, their, they blew their wad on trying to make Obama look like a socialist. And Obama was fairly popular. And so I think that kind of destigmatized the word. Uh, and I think, of course, young people don't care about that. Very um, interesting uh, indeed. Uh, Katie, uh, the N word is uh, one thing. What about the J word? It's high oh. time. Isn't it that America had its first Jewish president, Bernie yeah, Sanders? Yeah, is that potential first Jewish president? And yet yeah. there are people trying to persuade others that America's first Jewish president is in fact an anti-Semite. Tell us I about know. that. I mean, and actually, I really want to have you on my show. We can talk about this after I'll email you. Yeah, sure. I'd love to talk with you about the British elections and how much that term was weaponized. Yeah. But um, or that idea. I mean, I think that. People are trying to call him a self-loathing Jew. Um, and I actually wrote a piece about this in Jacobin, about how Sanders does represent a very rich. Um, that sounds not rich, like wealthy, but a, a very um, yeah, absolutely. Great rich. Jewish it's a rich, a rich seam. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I spent much of my life, Katie, imagining that if someone uh, was a left-wing person on my wavelength in America, they were almost certainly going to be Jewish. Uh, that, okay. that goes back uh, a century uh, yeah. or more. Uh, yeah. And it's still true today, although many Jews in America have moved to the right, it's still the case that yeah. most of my best icons on the American left are Jewish. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
Alright, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there's a really rich tradition of, of leftism and, you know, from pe- ranging from people like Bernie Sanders to Noam Chomsky. And I, I, you know, unfortunately, I think APAC gives a very unrepresentative view of what Jew- being Jewish means. Um, but this is a really interesting thing because, of course, uh, you have all these people who talk about identity um, and somehow when they... T- Sanders critics, when they talk about identity, somehow his Jewish identity doesn't come up or people try to claim that he's not really Jewish because he's not religious, which is a a totally different issue. There are tons of Jews who are not religious. I'm one of them. um, And I have a very strong Jewish identity, but I'm not religious. Um, I'm secular. And that's a tradition. But yeah, I think what they're going to try to do is call him a self-loathing Jew or point to the fact that he has people on his you know, who are surrogates or involved in the campaign, who they like to claim um, are anti-Semitic, and they're not. I think one of the greatest things is hearing um, criticism towards Israel. It's kind of ironic, but also logical, like we were saying, given this rich social justice tradition, um, that, you know, the most critical voice and most compassionate voice towards Palestinians, and by that I mean the person who actually you know, sees Palestinians as human beings with human, deserving of human rights, is a Jewish guy. Um, yeah, and I think that that's pretty amazing. Um, but yeah, I think that honestly, I don't, I'm hoping it won't work because I think he's so unabashed and so unapologetic about his politics and about his identity, um, that I just think that it, 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 it works among like a very elite crowd of people. And I think the rest of the world doesn't really care about it. You know, that's a that's very key point that you've just made. You, you said he's so unabashed. He's yeah. so enthusiastic about his politics. Right. And that is a key difference. We'll talk about this when I come on your yeah. show. That's I a key difference it. with Jeremy Corbyn, you see. Right. He ran right. away from this issue, uh, capitulated, surrendered threw his friends under a bus. But Sanders is not doing that. He's on the front foot, uh, ready to take on all comers. He knows that uh, it's now or never. Uh, But let's contemplate for a moment the unthinkable. The Democrats pick Joe Biden instead, a man who looks for all the world to me like a waxwork uh, dummy. I feel he's going to melt one night in front of the TV lights. Yeah, well, his uh, eye already exploded. His eye exploded. His teeth teeth shot out across the studio floor. I don't mean to mock, but that's what I saw with my own eyes. If they do, then Donald Trump will triumph. Uh, As sure as eggs are eggs, uh, he's going to to take a beating from Donald Trump, don't you think? 
Yeah, I do. I mean, it's interesting because I I'm someone who I'm pretty honest about my politics. Everyone knows that I'm a huge Bernie Sanders fan. And but I also think that I'm able to distinguish between the person whose politics I like and a person who's electable. And to be honest, to be fair, I at the beginning of this primary, I thought there were two people who could beat Trump. Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. And I was obviously I was able to distinguish between electability and and my own preference because I don't like Biden at all. But what's then as the primary went on, it wasn't the his distasteful politics, which I I find repulsive. But it was in terms of electability. I think what it was is that he just comes across as not with it. He comes across as and it's not an ageist thing because Bernie Sanders is a year or two older than him. And he's totally, you know, with it. I think Biden has just kind of lost it. And I think that Trump will be absolutely merciless with him. Um, he'll impersonate him. He'll uh, make fun of him. And yeah, Biden is just like, I mean, we're used to him saying these gaffes, whether they're really gaffes or they're intentional. We're used to those things. But the way he kind of just stalls and can't remember his website, that's something that I think people find troubling. And it's also one of the things that makes me think that maybe if this shift in media coverage is that it's genuine, then maybe it's because people realize that Biden really can't beat Trump and they're finally getting behind the person who can. Um, so you have people, the New York Times and MSNBC kind of shifting their, uh, changing their tune. Now, again, it could be possible that this is the quiet before the storm, which is what a lot of people uh, are saying. And that's how they responded to my Twitter query. But um, no, I, I, I now I really think that Sanders is the only one who can beat Trump. I think that he has the he appeals to people who don't believe in the political system. He, um, you know, he and Trump both speak to people who are in pain. Now, Trump is a con man and he speaks to them um, in a dishonest way. He's selling them snake oil. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, And there's a really dangerous thing where people compare them to each other as if they're similar. Now, what they don't realize is they're actually making an electability argument for Sanders, because what Sanders does is he he appeals to. I mean, the whole Bernie Brown myth is totally dead. They can't use that demographic identity-based argument because, unfortunately for them, Sanders' campaign is less male and less white than any other of the candidates, his base of support. Um, But I think that what we see is that Sanders and Trump both speak to angry people, and that's where they overlap, sure. But the key difference is that Trump says, blame Mexicans and Muslims, and Sanders says, don't blame Mexicans and Muslims blame, you know, corporate greed and structural inequality. And and when people don't get what how significant that difference is, it shows that they're really not able to see politics clearly. And um, they have some weird aesthetic um, issue with Sanders and, and Trump and not and a policy-based one. Well, uh, Katie, I've got to tell you, there's nobody in public life has a better record of prediction than me. And before you came on, I predicted that Bernie Sanders is going to be the Democratic Party nominee. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thanks for your time. The best of luck with your new show. I hope you gain many more viewers as a result of your appearance this evening. Katie Harper, thank you. Tarek Haddad, distinguished writer on Newsweek, one of the biggest selling magazines on the planet, has resigned from his very important position in international journalism, in protest at fake news, or at least the refusal to publish real news, the real news that he himself had helped to uncover, principally about the 
chemical weapons attack as was or wasn't at the site in Douma, which led the world closer to nuclear war between these superpowers than at any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. I'm glad to say we've got Tariq Haddad online. Now, Tariq, uh, first of all, I metaphorically take my hat off to you. Uh, you're a hero uh, to me. Tell us what led to your decision. What <clears throat> led to your decision that this was a line uh, that they had crossed and you could not go with them? Sure, uh, and thank you for having me on the show. Um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm going to assume that your listeners and, and watchers will be fairly familiar with the kind of outline of the story, so I won't go into too much detail about that. But the line for me personally is, um, you know, when evidence started to, well, first of all, it was published by the Mail on Sunday. Um, Peter Hitchens wrote a story, and now he's, he's written several stories about these leaks. Um, it, particularly one letter was um, verified by Reuters journalists, uh, you know, about these leaks. So what, when I kind of took this to my editors and tried to write a story about, you know, the information contained within these leaks, uh, and I was, you know, uh, pushed back for doing so, that was that was the, the limit because, you know, for me, I understand, you know, sometimes news stories you know, if they're controversial, they can, you know, they need solid sources. But this is kind of the first time I've ever seen, in my experience as a reporter, where, um, you know, something that's been published in a reputable British newspaper, um, regardless of what you think of the politics of the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday, they still produce quality journalism. Um, you know, it's, it's that, that goes without question. And then also Reuters, which is sort of the gold standard for journalism, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, if, if Reuters have verified this information and then, um, you know, I'm, I'm told that the information is not valid, then um, that was the line for me. And then did they, another... did they say, Tarek, that the information wasn't valid or just not validated enough yet? Well, I think um, an interesting part of this whole debacle, I think, is that there's a very new trend in, in propaganda and, and in journalism in that... Uh, because the you know the industry has been shrinking, uh, more and more people are, are starting to rely on places like Bellingcat. Now, I'm sure many people will still believe that um, you know Bellingcat are this gung-ho team of investigative journalists that are you know solving crimes all across the world. But I don't think uh, many people do know, and, and what they should know is that they're funded you know from dubious sources that are linked to US military interests. So essentially they are a propaganda arm of the US and the UK militaries. Uh, they, so what's happening is that, you know, reporters like me that try to write certain stories that contradict the official narrative get told, no, well, Bellingcat have, have, have done this, this refutation. But uh, as I pointed out, and I, I um, encourage your readers and listeners to go to my website and read the full article where I've laid everything out. But, um, you know, it's, yeah, this trend of saying, um, you know, Bellingcat have, have done this, so it's, we won't touch it. 
I, in my, in, you know, when this happened to me, I actually took apart the Bellingcat article that they sent to me and I addressed every single point that was raised uh, and kind of showed it how it wasn't, you know, a correct representation of what was going on and why it was still a valid news story. After, after I'd done this, they didn't have any valid response for me, really. It was just, oh, we'll discuss this in person. And then, you know, when I tried to discuss it, it was, I was simply told, sorry, but it's going to have to be a no. And I, that, um, you know, combined with a few other factors, which I'm happy to get into, um, you know, that's when I kind of discovered this is something corrupt going on. And did they uh, in any way react to your resignation? Did they know that it would become really quite a big issue? I'm bound to tell you, I don't often discuss <clears throat> what's in Newsweek, and <laughs> I haven't picked up a copy of it in many years. Uh, but uh, uh, everyone's talking about Newsweek and Tariq Haddad and the Duma story now. Do, mm -hmm. do you think they, they properly appreciated the consequences of this? No, I don't think they did at all. And funnily enough, I mean... You know, I'm a, I'm a I'm a journalist. I want the journal. You know, I want journalism to thrive. I'm not. I wasn't trying to do this to sort of damage the reputation of journalism. Even though I, I am probably as critical of them as as anyone can be. Um, you know, I try to raise the fact that you know, listen, this information coming out about Syria is growing by the day. Um, I understand, kind of, it's it might be controversial to say certain things about the Syria. You know the narrative. But my, my experience has always been if the evidence I have is solid and I can back it up with good sources, which I can do in this case, I've never had any issues writing the story. I tried to discuss with my editors, you know, saying, I understand this is controversial, but the evidence is growing. If we don't discuss this, we're going to look stupid. Um, you know, and I, I did mention that in an email to my two editors, including um, the editor-in-chief in New York, Nancy Cooper, and my um, London bureau chief, uh, Laura Davis, I mentioned both of these things, you know, wrote both of these things. And it, what I actually got in, in response was a character attack of myself as a journalist. And, you know, it was, that was the moment they when tried I decided to, to shoot the messenger. Exactly. And anyone who's got experience of journalism or these types of stories knows that, you know, when the messenger is shot, as you say, and the facts ignored, uh, the facts are ignored, you know, kind of who's, who's telling the truth. Who's saying, calling the shots, literally. Uh, do you think if your name had been John Smith rather than Tariq Haddad, that this would have had exactly the same outcome? Yeah, I, I think so. I don't think there was anything to do with my background involved in it. I mean, I'm a British citizen. I've been living in the UK for about 20 years. Um, and, you know, I've, I've never had any issues with other reporting. In fact, my background, you know, my Arabic background, which I make no attempt to hide, has often been a useful thing for me in my journalism. You know, I, I'm, I'm not fluent, but I speak Arabic, and that makes, you know, some things a lot, you know, gives me a certain advantage in journalism. Um, I think it's 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 more of a wider issue that there is kind of a, a mainstream media-wide cover-up of this story. Um, and essentially, as I, I point out in my article, there is a very worrying trend which may be known to people within the industry, but it was unknown to me, and I felt like it should be known to the wider public, is that um, a large amount of journalists are um, directly linked to think tanks that operate, you know, that make a profit from going to war. Um, 
you know, think tanks like the Council on Foreign Relations and others like that. And so they're going to do fellowships in these in these think tanks. And, you know, all this information is public. And then they will come and, and um, work in newsrooms where they'll decide what information should or should not be presented to the public. Now, the editor that refused my story, uh, I demonstrated in my article that he's, you know, was a fellow at the European Council of Foreign Relations. Um, you know, there's certain different things in his history that show that, you know, he's got a clear conflict of interests because he's clearly been in, in an environment where he's fostering relationships with people from the U.S. State Department or other officials and politicians. And, you know, our job as journalists is to hold the government to account, which is, should be fairly obvious to say. If someone is, you know, directly being funded by the U.S. State Department or, you know, think tanks of that nature, for me, I think, you know, that is the clear problem that's leading to this kind of whitewashing of this story. Well, uh, uh, the great Irish journalist Claude Coburn, uh, who coined the phrase, nothing is true until it's been officially denied, and mm -hmm. who characterised the proper relationship of a journalist to the power as, as the dog to the lamppost. But mm -hmm. in fact, most of what is still called the mass media, though the mass is thinning rather dramatically, uh, is uh, the, the dog is uh, urinating the other way uh, on their readers and viewers and listeners. And that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons why uh, the so-called mainstream media is really not all that mainstream anymore. You mm -hmm. identify two clear uh, uh, conflicts of interest, and let me summarize them. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the Bellingcats and other such think tanks produce microwave-ready stories and refutations <clears throat> and that can be easily published or broadcast without costing the media house in uh, question uh, any money at all, because that's already been paid for by the US or the UK or other states. And the second is uh, that the media is without, they don't have an annual conference and decide, you know, what lines to take and all that, but they automatically all face the same way. And in the case of Syria, isn't it the case that it was that the media had invested in the state narrative that the regime in Damascus must be destroyed and that any story or narrative which in any way mitigated against that, even where true, had to be suppressed. Isn't that so? I, I would say that's the case. I mean... I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit cautious in my wording in terms of even though what you're saying is correct, um, my kind of point is that I think there, despite this, there are still honest, good journalists out there. Um, you know, and I, I, like I said, I'm not doing this to try and damage the reputation of the media. Um, what I'm hoping, you know, is that honest journalists, and, and they do exist, you know, start pressuring their editors to... Um, you know, to, to report this story. Um, even though I've been kind of in the middle of all this attention recently, at, at the end of the day, I don't think, you know, the story is not about me. Um, it should be about a, a very, you know, a long history of what, you know, what's been going on in Syria and how the media has failed to cover it properly. And I think, you know, honest journalists needs to start, need to start um, addressing that. 
Um, and I think part of the issue is that actually many reporters, surprisingly, uh, aren't aware of how this propaganda operates. You know, they, the many people probably aren't aware that Bellingcat is funded by these dubious sources. Um, I think too many people, you know, have gone into journalism without the proper training in, in you know, how the media has been, um, you know, manipulated over the years or how this propaganda really works. Um, I was in a slightly fortunate position if, you know, that was kind of my main driving force of getting into journalism after the Iraq war. It was kind of, you know, while I was still very young and as I decided I wanted to be a journalist, it was something that fascinated me. So it was something I studied. But I think to a lot of people, it's it's really not known. And then if journalists don't know this, I think to the to the wider public, even though I'm sure a lot of people have their suspicions about Syria, you know, given the history of everything. But um I don't think many people in the public know about Bellingcat and how modern day propaganda is affecting the narrative. So I think that's what I'm trying to do. And hopefully, you know, something positive will come out of that. Well, uh, that's very loyal uh, of you. I can't say that I agree with you. Uh, I'm looking through the glass at a, a 50 year veteran of British journalism, and he doesn't agree with you either. I don't believe that any of these journalists on main, mainstream uh, media are not aware of what it is they're involved in. And the heroes like you, unlike Peter Hitchens, a man of the right, a deeply conservative man who's not Arab, who's not Muslim, who's not a supporter of the regime in Syria or any other regime. In fact, I've yet to find a regime uh, that he finds uh, favorable. Uh, but he has virtually alone in the English media uh, been determined that the truth will out about all of this. So you're a rare breed. You're in good company. Tariq Thanks. Haddad, thank you for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. What are you going to give up in February? A, Twitter. B, cigarettes. C, other. Plenty of scope there. I myself, give, I mean, I never drank alcohol and I've given up smoking five years ago. Uh, so there's not actually much left that I can give up. Uh, maybe the odd potato. Uh, Rob Marin says there's no such thing as the Labour Party anymore. All the Democrats in the US. It's flipped left to right, right to left, up, down, down, up. That's an interesting observation. Tell us uh, your thoughts on that, Adam. Well, I think that what what he's getting at, and it's very important, is that the core working class voters that would make up the Labour Party in Britain, and which in the United States made up a vast amount of the electorate for the Democratic Party, they've been left temporarily homeless by the normal parties of affiliation. And into that void has slipped first Donald Trump, who ran on issues of let's protect industry, let's invest in industry, your jobs are being taken away and I'm going to prevent that from eroding any further. And in Britain, it, there was less of an emphasis, to be fair, on the industrial jobs issues than with Trump. But Brexit, but Brexit, was, Brexit was a proxy for yes, those arguments. Absolutely, because Brexit, all the people that were frustrated at the decline of industry, frankly, the theft of industry, which took place gradually, and in many ways not so gradually, since the country was undemocratically taken into the EU, uh, well, the EEC as it was then in 73, people were venting their frustration, and quite rightly so. So I think that uh, the caller, not the caller, but the writer yeah, is absolutely yeah. right. 
Uh, George, seeing that the UK is lumbered with a right-wing Tory government with all that that implies, what do you think would happen to this special relationship if, God willing, Bernie Sanders, a socialist, were ever to get to the top job in the US? That's from Richard. Now, you, you don't think that Bernie uh, will beat Trump. You don't think anyone can beat uh, Trump. But uh, just imagine uh, that you had uh, uh, a more left-wing leader in the United States than we've got in Britain. What would that do to the special relationship? Well, we don't have to even look to a left-wing leader because Donald Trump, whilst not left-wing, was very much anti-establishment mm. on the foreign policy mm. front. And what did it do to Britain? It confused Britain. It infuriated many in the British foreign policy establishment. It arrested them. It beguiled. It befuddled. And I think a lot of that was also due to the fact that when Trump was elected, you had Theresa May, who is about as inflexible as an iron rod but with Boris and if it, if it were to be Bernie in the White House and Boris in number 10 I think what you'd see is Britain reducing its role in foreign affairs because there would be no American coattail to hang on to. This, however, assumes that a Bernie Saunders foreign policy would be similar to, let's say, a George Galloway foreign policy, which I don't think would be the case if he were to win. And as you said, I don't think, he, I don't think any of them can beat Trump. I think Trump is quite Teflon, but if somehow he was to get in, I think that he would make a, a deal with this so-called deep state and say, I'll do my domestic stuff without hindrance, but you lot can take care of the foreign policy business as you. Let's take uh, Asim in Edinburgh on China and the Uyghur Muslims. Go ahead, Asim. Hi, George. How you doing? Good, thank you. I'm very good. I hope Adam's doing fine as well. Yeah, so, yeah we're all in uh, fine form. Yes, go ahead. Uh-huh. Uh, that's good to hear. Uh, so basically, my question is, obviously, you've obviously got a, a bit of a briefing. Uh, so it's about China, obviously. So the, the situation we're in Xinjiang. And um, basically, the, my question really is, is really straightforward. What can other countries do to try and stop China? Because China's an economic superpower. It's like uh, right now it's at number two. I mean, it, it, what, what, what sort stop of... China what doing, stop China doing what? Well, in sense, well, we're aware of what's, what's happening in Xinjiang. For example, they're putting in Muslims or, um, or Kazakhs as well into what they call re-education camps, which we know isn't true. We know they're concentration camps. We know fine that they are... How do you know that? Tell me how you know that. What are you basing that on? Well, what, what we've seen in the media and all the people that have come out of well, it. Uh, uh, come out you, you don't want to read, uh, believe everything you read in the oh, media, Asim. You didn't, you didn't believe it when they were saying that about Jeremy Corbyn, did you? No, I absolutely not, no. You see my point? The, yeah, I do. The, there's, a, there's a massive propaganda barrage against China and its target moves. Uh, you're too young to remember, but uh, there was once upon a time a man who thought he was God, uh, called the Dalai Lama, uh, was the flavor of the month in Western propaganda. And China was routinely accused uh, of uh, butchering uh, the Tibetans, uh, crushing their culture, starving their people, and it was all fake news. And uh, nowadays, uh, people go on holiday uh, to the uh, Chinese province of Tibet and wonder at the marvel, at the wonders uh, that they see. Uh, there was, a, again, before you were born, the Falun Gong, uh, a, a bizarre a religious cult 
uh, that were supposedly repressed by China. And they became the flavor of the month in, uh, in Western uh, propaganda. Uh, the Muslim question is the latest. Hong Kong is another. Uh, I've got my own criticisms of Chinese policy uh, towards its uh, religious minorities, but I don't accept for one minute your apparent thesis uh, that, uh, that uh, millions of Muslims in Xinjiang are in concentration camps. And there's no evidence at all to back that thesis, Adam. Well, it is a bit funny that the same people, literally the very same people who don't care about Muslims in Libya, in Syria, in Iraq, in Kashmir, in, in Nigeria, in so many places, magically they found the one place on earth yeah. where they pretend to care about Muslims. Uh, but even that is going to, frankly, shift. And I think it's going to leave a lot of people who think that there's going to be some great liberal crusade in hand with uh, uh, misguided and misled Muslim populations against China. They're going to be disappointed because the main foci of the anti-China infowar is on Hong Kong for a very simple reason. Very few people in the outside world go to Xinjiang in northwest China, but many go to Hong Kong. It's a financial center strapped on to a giant shopping mall and beyond that the people in Hong Kong are uh, at least their made-for-TV image is quite relatable to people in New York and London they're a-religious like people in London and New York uh, they dress immodestly like people in London and New York and they live that kind of lifestyle so when it comes to uh, when it comes to hitching the anti-China bandwagon to a stallion, trust me, it's not going to be the Muslim stallion, it's going to be the Hong Kong stallion, but even that one hasn't really come in first place. The, there is a, a problem with Islamist extremism in China, as indeed there is in England, yes. <laughs> and uh, in every uh, country uh, around the world, actually, including Nigeria, to which you... Uh, uh, just alluded. Uh, China is struggling with that. There are tens of thousands of Uyghur Muslims in the jihadist armies in Syria, yes. for example. That's why uh, China is now paying much more attention to the Middle East and to the Syrian uh, theater in particular, because they know uh, that these uh, throat cutters learning their trade in Syria are going one day to be back in China and uh, they're going to have to fight them there. Uh, so China is wrestling with uh, the existence of Islamist fanaticism in Xinjiang, which is, of course, a Turkic-speaking uh, area of China, receiving a lot of propaganda and some financial, maybe even some military uh, support from some Muslim countries, the usual suspects in particular. Uh, I still think that China could do much better in explaining its situation to the world. For example, it was a big mistake for China to react to Mesut Ozil, the Turkish footballer's comments, uh, by making uh, an immediate blackout uh, on Arsenal and on Ozil, and by extension on Turkey, he's Turkish. Uh, it was a mistake to do that. They should have used that to open up this debate, this discussion that I'm doing on their behalf, unpaid 
I should say, uh, this evening. Uh, they should explain to people what's going on in Xiankang, uh, because there's lots of people uh, like Asim uh, around the world who think that China bans Ramadan, forces Muslims to eat pork and drink alcohol, and has incarcerated millions of people in Xinjiang in concentration camps. China should be dealing with this much better than it is. Yes, and one of the interesting things about Chinese media is it's not really programmed for this world of punch and duty, international propaganda, international information, call it what you will. And the, things are improving in a way. There's a bus service now that goes between Xinjiang and Lahore in Pakistan, which is, of course, the closest ally of China in the Muslim world, arguably one of China's closest all-weather allies in the world. And there have been many scholars, many tourists, uh, many people from all walks of life in Pakistan who have written about their personal experiences of going from a Muslim country, a formerly Muslim country, over the border into China and seeing that things, what's different than Pakistan to be sure, it's not this kind of repressive hellish situation that people in the Washington Post and others who found the WMD before they set a foot in Iraq were so eager to tell the world. So I think that what China ought to do is open up and say you're invited to come and take a look for yourself. And to be fair, they're doing that more than they have, but the defensive posture, which in a way is understandable, it alienates potential sympathetic ears and eyes and feet. Great. Let's hear from Mike in South Carolina. He's got a question for you, Adam. Go ahead, Mike. I, I want to talk about Bernie Sanders, but I've got one quick thing I want to say about China, yeah. and that is they have shown far more restraint than the Obama administration would have in that same situation in Hong Kong, because, uh, you know, Obama was very quick to stamp out uh, all of the protests in the, uh, New York City regarding the one percenters. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? I mean, they went all over the country, you know, closing down all of the Occupy Wall Street and the rest of it. Uh, and that's Good not point. happened in Good Hong point, Kong. Good point, Mike. You know, Good point. But, but, but as far as Bernie Sanders is concerned, mm -hmm. uh, Katie had the, the absolute her finger on the pulse of what's happening in the United States. Adam thinks that uh, that uh, Trump can't lose this election, but he needs to understand that even by Fox News standards, over 50 percent of the people in the United States want Trump not only impeached but removed from office. And and how how can you win? How can you possibly win an election when over half the people want him removed from office? Well, in an opinion poll, uh, that's uh, true. Uh, but the uh, election isn't fought by opinion poll. Neither is it fought on the popular vote. And I agree with Michael Moore, who said this week uh, that uh, that uh, Trump uh, could well lose uh, the popular vote again, even by more than he did against Hillary Clinton. Uh, but because of the rules of the Electoral College, still win the presidency. Adam. Well, yes, um, I agree with that, even though I would go a step further and to say that I think that this time he'll win the popular vote. I mean, if Bush could do it, for God's sake, in 2004, Trump, who's a ten times more charismatic figure and much more unique figure, a much more nationalistic figure than, the, than Bush the Terrible, I think he'll be able to win quite comfortably. I think depending on who his opponent is, we could see the biggest gap since 1984 when Ronald Reagan crushed... Uh, uh, Mondale decisively, 
My view is, if the Democrats pick as weak a candidate as they will probably pick, I think that, that we could see the Democratic candidate winning five states or less. So when it comes to a prediction, I'm not setting it in stone because a lot can change between now and November of next year. But if they pick a weak candidate, which I suspect they will, I should think that they might win five states or less with all of the others going to Trump. Mike, last word to you. Yeah, I, I would say I would say this about that. Uh, uh, Trump himself and the Republican Party cannot win this election. The only person that can lose the election is the Democrats, and they're and they're well on the way to doing that if they actually allow uh, Joe Biden or somebody like him to become their candidate. If Bernie Sanders is the candidate, uh, he will win this election hands down. But uh, uh, the only way that, that, that Trump can can win is if the Democrats give it to him. And I don't put it past them because there are so many. Establishment Democrats running the DNC and the DCCC uh, that they actually might uh, elect, you know, use their their super delegates in a second vote to put in somebody like a Joe Biden, which is an automatic loss, and and that's the only way Trump can win. Mike, thanks for the call from South Carolina. Of course, if the uh, super delegates put in someone like Joe Biden, there would be all hell would break loose in the Democratic Party. Uh, the possibility of Sanders in those circumstances making a third party uh, run uh, would be, I think, enormously powerful, in which case your man would win uh, even more handsomely. Which is one of the reasons I think that he, he would be restrained from doing so. Because even though his base would be livid if they put an Elizabeth Warren or a Joe Biden or one of the others in their place, so they were to steal it from him, the way, frankly, that Hillary and her people stole it in 2016, there would be a lot of people who would shift from being pro-Bernie to just being anti-Trump. Because among the, among the people who hate Donald Trump, they really hate him. And I think that there would be a lot of cajoling going on to say, Bernie, don't do it. Just hold your nose and say that you'll smile and take a Polaroid picture yeah, with Elizabeth Warren. Sure, but they don't even have a House of Lords they can elevate him to. <laughs> There's nothing they can offer uh, old Bernie except a chance at the uh, presidency. Uh, so I think they'll find it difficult. Um, they'll certainly find it difficult to uh, carry his base. I mean, yes. the idea that Sanders voters are going to transfer to Joe Biden is frankly ridiculous. Many They're will not. either stay home or if Jill Stein runs again, no. which she may well do as a Green Party candidate, I think a good number of Bernie people would go over to her. Adam, can you please tell us who will win the Scottish Premiership this season? Thanks. James in Dundee. <laughs> Shall I answer that for you? I think it's probably a safer bet. <laughs> the famous Glasgow Celtic. Uh, greetings, George and Adam. I'm from the country of Slovenia. Sorry in advance for Melania and Klobuchar. But in school, we never had an in-depth analysis of what exactly happened during the collapse of Yugoslavia, Tito's Yugoslavia to be exact, and what was Slovenia's role during these events. I was born years after the initial tragedy, and my parents and elders gave me conflicting accounts of what happened. I can't get an objective picture, so I was wondering if Adam can bring some clarity mm. on this issue. It's a big issue. Maybe we should uh, have a proper uh, debate on it, but have a stab at, uh, at a, a brief 
synopsis? Well, the first thing that came to my mind is, you know you're getting old when someone from the former Yugoslavia asks you what happened to in, during the collapse of the former Yugoslavia. Good that was point. the first thing that came to Good my mind. Point. The second thing is that Slovenia was the only constituent republic of Yugoslavia that seceded peacefully. It was the first to declare independence in 1991, and although there were there was a kind of political skirmish, there was no real fight in any meaningful way, the way there was in Bosnia-Herzegovina, Croatia, uh, the, the Serbian uh, constituent element of Kosovo, and to uh, some degree Macedonia, which is now called North Macedonia, and may well be subsumed into a greater Albania over the next five years. Slovenia was always a, a, a funny one because Whilst it was a, a Slavic country, um, like most of the rest of Yugoslavia, and whilst it was a majority Catholic country like Croatia, there was always something to do. Slovenia was always sort of one foot in the wider Austrian world, in spite of a different ethnicity. Germany drove the recognition of independent Slovenia. Yes, quite so, and they even... Mrs Thatcher wasn't happy about that. Uh, yes. Uh, she, uh, she opined uh, uh, quite strongly. Uh, that the Germans had prematurely uh, triggered the problems in Yugoslavia yes. by, by, by prematurely recognizing breakaway states. And she was also uh, very upset with uh, her erstwhile friend, uh, George H.W. Bush, because she was very reticent to see German reunification happen so early. And, and her views were really a generational thing rather than anything to do with her, her party. But by the time Slovenia seceded, she was already having dealt with the reunification of Michael Heseltine and John Major, <laughs> far from being worried about the breakup of Yugoslavia and the reunification of Germany. But long story short, Culturally, Slovenia's always had one foot to the north of the rest of Yugoslavia. And, and because of that, I think that's why it wasn't a blood-soaked secession, as almost all of the others were. Philip in New Jersey. He thinks Biden's yeah, hi, stronger George. than we do. Go ahead, Philip. Yeah, hi, George. Hi. Um, uh, I back Bernie in uh, 2016, and I really back him strongly uh, this year. But I think uh, you and Adam and others are underestimating Biden. I think uh, Biden is just more popular with average voters as opposed to college-educated voters here and in the U.K. than you might think. And he reminds me of George W. Bush, who made a lot of mistakes when he would, uh, you know, in some of his speaking, but nevertheless, average voters liked him. Mm. And I think uh, also this election, as uh, many in uh, the Western world and, and in the U.S. Uh, today, is more about uh, who you don't want to win. I think voters in the U.K. look like they did not want Corbyn in office, and they uh, wanted Brexit, so they voted for Boris. I think uh, this election in 2020 will be, do you want Trump or not? And I think 50% of the people hate him, maybe 40, 42% like him. And I think uh, Biden, even though he's clearly uh, losing a step, uh, attacks on him will fall off just uh, the way attacks on Trump and his womanizing and, you know, paying off prostitutes fall off. Everybody knows that. 
Uh, they either accept it or they don't. And uh, I think there will be absolutely no third party running because I think uh, no Democrat and even Michael Bloomberg will uh, ultimately risk seeing Trump elected. And I think uh, you shouldn't forget the secret weapon Democrats have in 2020, and that is uh, none of them are, Bernie, are uh, Hillary Clinton. I couldn't stand Hillary. Uh, I'm not sure if she's the only Democrat running that uh, I'm not sure if I'd vote about vote for. I think she's just deeply corrupt, more than Biden. Uh, I think Biden's son, Hunter, is a grifter, but I'm not sure Joe is uh, that way, whereas Hillary was. And Hillary's also uh, just an avid warmonger, as you well know. And I don't think Biden is as bad. And I think uh, Bernie's, uh, you know, a lot better than Biden. But I think, uh, you know, they win. And I think they're both good enough to win in the uh, key industrial states. Uh, they take somewhat different voters. Bernie will take uh, more anti-establishment voters, more younger people. And Biden will take, I think, more of the older uh, white voters who aren't so... Uh, entranced with left liberal liberalism but uh you know biden is a kind of uh, older democrat uh maybe similar to some older labor party well i think uh that's a, a fantastically good call uh and th that it's uh, counter to what we've been saying uh, makes it the more uh valuable uh let me ask you a question or two though phil uh before i ask adam to respond I absolutely take your point that amongst the general electorate, uh, Biden is not as weak as I suspect he is in the primaries, uh, because of course, whilst many millions vote in the primaries, far more people vote in the general presidential uh, election. Uh, I think that Bernie will win because his base amongst uh, politically active people and politically conscious people who are the most likely to vote in primaries is much greater than uh, Biden's. And my second point to you would be this. I take your point that insulting the diction, uh, the vocabulary, uh, the facial characteristics and simian knuckle-dragging of George W. Bush worked in political circles, but didn't necessarily amongst the general public, uh, many of whom are not particular linguists themselves. Uh, when it comes to the debate, the many debates, it seems to me that Donald Trump would pulverize Joe Biden. He's not strong enough to stand up nowadays, maybe once upon a time, but he's at least 20 years past his sell-by date. I feel that he would be pulverized by Trump. Your response, Philip? Well, I think uh, uh, he, he, is, he has clearly lost a step since uh, 2012. But if you look at 2012's debate uh, he had against Paul Ryan, it was the single best debate performance of any of them, including Obama and Romney. He really handled uh, Ryan very well, pushed back on 
Ryan's uh, avid uh, desire to uh, cut back on the welfare state, in particular Medicare and Social Security. And that's always been a good Democratic Party response that they often don't make. And I also think Biden performed very well against Sarah Palin in 2012. And that wasn't as easy as people would think, because a lot of people would, were looking to see if uh, Biden would look down on this, uh, you know, outsider, first-time governor candidate who's a woman that he might be uh, acting like he's superior to her. And I thought he, uh, he handled that well. Uh, so I thought he, you know, he has been a better debater than people think. I admit he's lost something. Uh, but uh, again, I think uh, just like with Trump's own issues, which Hillary mistakenly emphasized constantly, including in my state, which was, uh, you know, ridiculous to advertise in New York City when it's a heavily Democratic area. But I saw ad after ad on Trump's temperament. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows about Biden's issues, I think, when they watch him. But, uh, you know, I think a lot of the older whites, again, are comfortable with him. And a lot of the others, uh, younger people in particular, like my sons, I think will vote for him anyway, just to get rid of Trump. And they know... Uh, Biden will be a one-term president. And, uh, again, I hope Bernie wins, but I'm going to vote for Biden anyway. So, uh, Interesting. Let's, I think he... let's, uh, let's ask Adam for the final word on this then. Adam. Well, I agree that, essentially, he's passed his sell-by date. When he was reading Neil Kinnock's speeches with the vigor of comparative youth, that was one thing, but it's a very different... Joe Biden, and unlike Bernie, who's still, you know, rocking and socking, and unlike Trump, who's no spring chicken, but he's rocking and socking, I think uh, Biden's days of reading Neil Kinnock's speeches with enthusiasm have definitely waned. But then there's the X factor, which is, what is Trump going to do over the next 11 months? And these are my predictions, all of which bode well for him at election time. One, I think he's going to accelerate a trade deal with China, which will be good for the markets, good for prices, good for the agricultural industry in the US, which, to be fair, has been the only industry hit hard by the China trade war. I think that, two, he's going to have some more successful summits with Kim Jong-un, uh, free of the walrus, uh, you know, bark in the corner. That would be John Bolton. He's gone. He was the main obstacle to peace. And so I think we're going to see Trump get to play the role of being very presidential, uh, doing a peace summit with both Korean leaders. The, he'll probably doubtless talk to the Chinese president and the Russian president about the issue and look very statesmanlike in the process. And I think with those things in mind, so long as the trade deals can carry the markets and the jobs numbers forward into 2020, it's going to be very difficult for the people who are already on the fence but leaning to Trump because he hasn't been big and bad. He hasn't destroyed the economy. He hasn't appointed some pornographic prostitute as Secretary of State, even though that might have been an improvement of the <laughs> And he hasn't started a new war. He hasn't taken jobs away. The jobs numbers are good. The problems with the American economy, which whilst many are systematic and due to a flawed monetary policy, due to the Federal Reserve, not due to Trump per se. So, so long as Trump can keep things going and look presidential on the world stage, I think he's going to be very, very difficult for anyone Do to you stop. Believe we'll ever Thanks, Philip, in New Jersey, politics, let's take a quick break. Or will it only get worse? That's from Edmund Neurtier. Uh, I thought the apex, Nadir, 
was reached today when the Lake District was lectured uh, that even though it's rammed with tourists and can scarcely uh, uh, accept any more, it must try harder on its lack of diversity. There are too many uh, old white people going on holiday and on trips to the Lake District, said the local tourism boss. That's identity politics gone mad, hasn't it? Oh, totally gone mad, because he's actually... Because people go to the Lake District for one reason only, to see the natural environment. So if the natural environment is repelling people on a racial basis... Not just racial, but everywhere. I mean, there are too many straight white men so in, got, the, in, the, in the Lake District. So you've got a racist tree, a homophobic lake, <laughs> a, a xenophobic rolling hill of grass. I mean, it's totally ridiculous. I mean, what do they want? Should Prince Charles hire a, an architect to build a monstrous concrete carbuncle with a Burger King in it to make it more like London? I mean, come on. In rainbow colours. <laughs> of course. Let's hear from Hamid in London. Hamid, welcome. Hi. Good afternoon. I just wanted to say, you were talking earlier about China and the, the, how they treat the Muslims and extremism. But I, I live in London. I wanted to say, why the British government still allows Saudi Arabia, Qatar and other countries to fund mosques in the UK? Surely it should be made illegal the same way, because what they do, they, pre, they send imams here. Imams are only one of the categories where they still issue work visas. And they bring these guys over here and they preach this hate doctrine. And then <clears throat> you get radicalism. Why doesn't the government, it's very simple, they say we want to fight radicalism. Why don't they stop the funding of mosques by this, uh, you know, Wahhabi ideology which comes over from well, Saudi Arabia? Uh, uh, it's uh, probably a question of money. Uh, and I'll ask Adam in a minute. But my answer would be, uh, prefaced by this, Hamid, that the British government actually has never wanted to fight Islamist extremism. In fact, the British government's been in bed with Islamist extremism since the 1950s, since the uh, fostering of the uh, harboring of and the fostering of uh, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt as a cat's paw for British policy. Uh, against uh, uh, Nasser, President Nasser, the greatest of all the Arab leaders. And Britain has harbored, as a matter of deliberate policy, Islamist extremism here in our own country. I give you uh, the most obvious example being uh, the uh, fighting Islamic group in uh, Libya, the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, the clue being, as I always say, in the name. Uh, we fostered, harbored, helped, facilitated the Libyan Islamic fighting group. We harbored them in Manchester. One of their children blew up our children in the Manchester arena. Uh, and they did so as a matter of deliberate policy so that they could one day use this Libyan Islamic fighting group to destroy uh, the Gaddafi uh, regime in Libya. Adam. 
Well, I think that the caller makes a very important point. If you can't have a foreign regime funding a, a political party, why should they fund a religious institution or a religious sect or even a religious building? So I think if you went after this on the financial line saying, look, any donation over, let's say, £5,000 to a religious organisation from a foreign government or from a registered entity abroad, it needs to go through some very stringent checks. And I I think that that would hopefully be the beginning of, of getting local people to shape the kind of religion taught in religious schools of all denominations, religious institutions, houses of prayer of all denominations, because one doesn't want churches or mosques or any other religious institution to be surreptitious tools of foreign interference. If it's good enough for political parties, why, why not for religious institutions? Last word to you, Hamid. Yeah, I think it's true. And also, I wanted to say why, for example, uh, when something happens, you were talking about identity politics. Why, if it's a Muslim, they always have to mention the Muslim. You know, the taxi driver was Muslim, you know, when they had the thing in Rotterdam. But if, for example, Epstein or Weinstein or Philip Green or whatever, nobody mentions their religion. But if it's, if it's a Muslim, they always have to mention their religion. Why? Why, if, for example, the, somebody is the first Muslim this or the first black this, when are we going to get past this identity thing? They, you know, you, uh, sorry to say, but I mean, the BBC says, oh, we are very unbiased. But they are the worst ones because they shove this down the throat of everybody. You know, the first Muslim mayor of London, the first black president of this. Surely if they are all the same, they shouldn't be putting these labels on people. Good point, Hamid. Thank you for that. Simon is also in London. Go ahead, Simon. How you doing, George? You okay? Yes, good. Thanks. Thanks for calling. Merry Christmas, by the way, to uh, you to and Adam. To you also. Merry Thank Christmas. you. Yeah, and a happy new year as well, of course. Yeah. Cheers, um, yeah, despite everything that's happened in the last few weeks with regards to the Labour Party, the most disappointing and disturbing part of this is the fact that Corbyn could not defend his friends, no matter what happened, regardless of whether people were under the bus, uh, thrown under the bus, against ludicrous, ludicrous claims, false claims of anti-Semitism. He kept apologizing for absolutely no reason, when all he needed to tell right-wing journalists like Andrew Neil uh, was that Judaism is a fine, peaceful religion, and Jews are great people, but Zionism uh, is a poisonous, racist, right-wing political movement, which should be, and, uh, should be and should be open to scrutiny and criticism like any political movement. For me, the fact that he couldn't even make this simple differentiation shows to me that everything he's getting now, um, he kind of deserves. Now, even when this week, or last week I think it was, a gutless spineless jellyfish like Tony Blair came out and blamed Corbyn for racism, uh, uh, anti-Semitism, and uh, being so left-wing that he became unvotable. He didn't, he didn't defend himself. In fact, if anything, Theresa May's aide um, came out and defended, uh, defended Corbyn, which is extraordinary, I find. You know? um, which kind of leads me to a question, George. Has Corbyn actually thrown this selection deliberately? No, not at all. Uh, but his... Uh... His uh, character defects are uh, displayed by the kind of uh, failures that you identify. The very same characteristics that got him the nomination as Labour leader in the first place. You see, nobody else except Jeremy Corbyn could have got the then necessary 40 nominations. Uh, no other person on the left could have got that. I certainly couldn't have got that uh, John McDonnell couldn't have got it, no one else but Jeremy Corbyn could have got it. And 
He got it because he was universally regarded as a weak and nice and harmless character. And so people lent him their vote that had nothing in common with his political views, and they openly admitted uh, afterwards that they then felt extremely foolish because he had gone on to win the contest. Uh, uh, the uh, one in, in particular, the former uh, deputy uh, leader of the uh, Labour Party, she described herself as a moron for having uh, done so. She did so because of the very characteristics that make up Jeremy Corbyn, uh, which later made him unable, unwilling, you could argue which, uh, to stand up against the onslaught and stand up for his friends. Uh, and uh, the Ma Margaret Beckett was not the only one. There were many others. David Lammy uh, nominated uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Emily Thornberry uh, nominated Jeremy Corbyn because none of them, uh, uh, Sadiq Khan nominated uh, Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> none of them imagined that he could win. And they could only do what they did because of the very characteristics that then played out in real time over four years that made Corbyn's leadership in the end a failure. Simon, thanks for the call. Uh, Bob is in Maryland in the US. Got a question for Adam. Bob, go ahead. Yes, thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to ask, I've run across recently the notion of the militarization of space, and the thinking was that a, a country, a very powerful country, could put a platform in place with a nuclear weapon and position it over a country and ask or demand their cooperation. My, the basis or the root of the question is the cavalier manner, and I'm using that in quotes, in which nuclear weapons are spoken about. On Earth, they're just totally devastating, but the idea of having a platform over a country, and could he speak to that in just the way that, again, this nuclearization is spoken about? Such a good or question, uh, Bob. Thank you uh, very much for that. It's uh, almost sacrilegious, isn't it, weaponizing the heavens? Well, yes, um, even though I'd rather bomb the moon than bomb Earth, because unlike certain conspiratorial radio shows, I don't think there's anything on there. But getting to the serious point... Not even Elvis? <laughs> Posse's there eating the cheese. Uh, <laughs> in an alternative universe where Hillary is president of the moon, winning yeah. both the popular and electoral vote. But uh, getting to, to the serious point, there's already enough nuclear weapons on the planet to destroy the entire planet several times over. So this whole weaponizing of space, it's sort of the space race 2.0. It's about challenging your opponent to see how much money they can spend, trying to find out how much technology that they have, but maybe haven't been flashing out in the open through these provocations. Because in the, the main nuclear powers can destroy any country in the world through ICBMs that are launched from Earth. So the entire thing, it's, it's a bit of a dangerous vanity project, but I don't think it's materially going to change anything. If, a, if one of the main countries wants to destroy another one, they're more than capable of doing it. Thanks for that, Bob. Uh, Robert is in Florida. Go ahead, Robert. Hi. Hi, George. Hi. Hi, Adam. Hi there. Okay, so you're talking about Bernie Sanders, and I, I shudder at the thought 
of a Bernie Sanders presidency. In fact, I shudder at the thought of any of these people becoming president. My real opinion is no more presidents. How about that? I mean, what, what are they really good for? They're really not serving the interests of the American people. It's all about foreign policy. But my point about Sanders is, is socialism and communism. There's already incredible money printing happening here in the United States. I'm not hearing any specifics from Sanders. I'm not hearing any specifics from anyone about anything. And the media has everything to do with this as, as well. So there's so much... I don't get what Sanders, what everybody would want up in Sanders, because essentially, I mean, what is communism? And disagree me, agree with me if you wish, but the state sets your value as a person. Right? Adam, this is um, up uh, up your street, I think. Yes, well, I was talking about the systematic problems with the American economy earlier, and the caller talked about the printing of money. Well, the so-called left likes tax and spend, and the so-called right likes borrow and spend. They can all agree on print and spend, and it's going to destroy America because the dollar is still the international reserve currency. Why, I don't know. I mean, I do and I don't if you get my drift, but that is going to be the cause of the next depression or the next recession because, lo and behold, monetary irresponsibility, government and central planners interfering with monetary policy has been the cause of every great modern depression on earth and just about every depression even before the modern era. So I agree, when it comes to the monetary policy, you can't put a cigarette paper between any of them because they all think that printing money is somehow good when it represents literally a theft from the most economically vulnerable and in the longer sense it represents building a house of cards that will fall on the backs of all of the people so I agree when it comes to the macroeconomic issues which are centered on monetary policy there's a disaster waiting to happen no matter who's in charge thanks for that Robert Jamal is in <coughs> Virginia let's hear from him Jamal Jamal are you there We've lost him. Okay, let me deal with some of the written ones because there's lots of them. Uh, ask Adam, which politicians, pundits and writers have most shaped your views? Living, dead, current? Uh, well, I suppose he didn't specify. No. Inter well, I and we're short of time, so... Right, okay. So my favourite British politicians... Benjamin Disraeli, the third Marquess of Salisbury, Joseph Chamberlain, uh, my favorite international politicians, uh, Dong Xiaoping, uh, Otto von Bismarck, and Robert Taft from the US. Um, and in terms of my favorite thinkers, I suppose Nietzsche, Freud, and Spengler. Well, that's a quick and comprehensive uh, uh, answer. Chris Strange says, what do you think David Lammy's chances of being elected Labour leader are? I'm seeing a needle go through the eye of the camel and then the camel's laughing at the chances of David Lammy getting through. <laughs> I think that's right. Jamal's back on the line. Go ahead, Jamal. Jamal, are you there? No, we still don't have him. Uh, be a voice for the voiceless, ask Adam. Should faith schools be banned? No, of course not. That would be, we talked about communism, that's one of the things I hate most about communism. I think that banning faith schools would be absurd. The Flat Earther asks, I wish to ask Adam how much of an economic boost can we expect to the economy 
in terms of trade, GDP, jobs, etc., when Britain signs free trade deals with the USA, Canada, Australia, China, South Korea, Japan, etc.? And do you think the EU will refuse to sign a free trade agreement with uh, Brexit Britain? I'll answer quickly because I can. I think that the trade deals are going to be one of the best things, if not the best thing, to happen to the British economy since the early 90s. And <coughs> as for the second question, I think that the shareholders at places like Siemens, VW, uh, uh, Mercedes-Benz, they're already shaking in their clogs. So even I, I realize there's a Dutch, but yeah, there's going to be a trade deal. Michael, gone. Not Michael Gove. No, gone. <laughs> Michael Gove is listening, but not phoning. Uh, George, what's the gripe with Jess Phillips? She may not be leadership material, but she speaks from the heart and usually makes sense. Michael, are you in <laughs> Ward 5, Broadmoor? She speaks from the heart and usually makes sense. She's the most fake working-class brummy, <laughs> my backside that I have ever met and usually makes sense. I've never known a parliamentarian to make less sense. Your view. There's a taverna somewhere in Athens missing its Aristotle impersonator. <laughs> uh, no, J Jess Phillips is... Uh... She's, she's something other than else to put on, you know, a Star Trek voice. I just, she's incompetent, she's incapable, she's irritating, and those are just her good bits. <laughs> <laughs> Chrissy says Trump has stated three times on camera that he hopes Biden will win the nomination. Why do you think that is? Because Biden will be a complete pushover and the world will suffer four more years of Trump. Of course, Chrissy, that could be a double bluff. You know what I'm saying. Now, our sound desk has been hacked. Having seen off the, uh, the cyber attacks two weeks running, uh, Moscow's defences uh, were uh, so robust by week three that we repelled all borders. But now our sound desk has literally been hacked. So uh, big apologies to Norma, the legend, and Jamal, who won't be able to get on. And I'm sorry to say we won't be able to take any more calls this week. But don't worry, Moscow will move with alacrity and great uh, might uh, to quash this latest uh, attack on the mother of all talk shows, I'm perfectly sure. Zachariah says, uh, America is not a place to be afraid like that. Y'all are ignorant and must never have walked the streets of this country. Like every other country, there are problem areas. And Bob Chanel says, we don't have a left in the US. The Democrats have moved to the right of what was once considered moderate Republican positions. And uh, here's an interesting one from James. If England had an independence vote, what would the result be? What do you think? Oh, it, it would be a, a total damp squib. It would be, it, it would just be totally silly. Uh, there, there's actually a party called the English Democrats. Yeah, they don't leader, get far, no. His, their leader is famous for trying to say Brexit had already happened, which was an admirable case, but no, there's not going to be an English independence. <laughs> independence from what? It, it, it's just silly. It's just silly. Uh, Kevin Tuey, uh, without national healthcare systems, health getting poor and life expectancy declining for the average American. And Patrick says, what do you make of the Catholic social justice influenced American Solidarity Party, and do you feel that a Chestertonian-influenced political party 
is viable in Yankee land. It's above my pay grade. Do you want to have a stab at that? Well, I've never heard of the party, but if we're going to talk about morality in politics, there was actually a story I read just a few hours ago that I think summarizes the last 10 years of at least Western history. In the MOD, which for our international viewers or for people who watch Channel 4 is the Ministry of Defense, they've built what they call gender-neutral lavatories, which means the men and women in the same place. Of course, my headline was MOD, female MOD employees don't like the sound of the men dropping bombs next door, but that didn't make uh, the papers. But what that showed me metaphorically is that you can't change human nature. You can say that you want to have a breakdown of all these gender barriers and that it's sexist and the rest of it to say that you're opposed to men and women excreting their various fluids and sometimes solids next to each other. But as someone who's met men and met women, uh, throughout most of my life, I know one thing if I know anything. Women do not want to be anywhere near a man using lavatorial facilities. Um, you can't change human nature, but I actually am quite pleased that they did this at the MOD, because if they could get this experiment to work, there would be world peace, <laughs> if they could convince the women to sit next to the men dropping their bombs in the, in the loo, but it's not going to happen. Mabuhe from the Philippines. Happy New Year to George, Adam, and the rest of the Moats family. That's from LCSIAO. And Peter, uh, talking about Tariq Haddad, an educated journalist, species yes. rare. Alison Mason says, hi from Greece. Greece's public health service is also being sold off under EU diktat. Abdul Wahab Qasim Ibrahim, happy New Year to all viewers. Uh, Roger Manifold says the truth is a diminishing commodity that thankfully this program provides an antidote to. And Jack Lakeland says, I don't think Trump blames Muslims and Mexicans. He blames those who have managed migration so badly in the past. He didn't say all Mexicans are rapists. He said the Mexican government was allowing them to cross the border. He didn't have a Muslim ban. It was his predecessors. And Pseudo Switch says, please screen the callers for sub 100 IQs. Not at all. I think the IQ uh, quotient on this program is second to none. In fact, I don't know of any program over three hours on politics and current affairs anywhere in the world that matches this program. For the quality of those talking to you from this side of the camera and the quality of those making calls from New Zealand, from South Carolina, from uh, all over uh, the world, people are listening and contributing uh, to this show. I'm sorry about the hacking of our sound desk. We really will have to attend to that. Uh, but it's been marvelous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, then come back next week at the same time in the same place and bring another viewer and listener with you because I'm determined that we get to this number one million uh, before very much longer. Wishing you all a very happy new year.